Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Pay-Per-View where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place the bets and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is... Migration. This is in the Independent. Soros Foundation sues Hungary over laws making it legal to help asylum seekers at European Court of Human Rights. The international philanthropic organisation founded by George Soros has said it would take Hungary to the European Court of Human Rights over laws which make it a crime to help asylum seekers. However, Budapest has staunchly asserted it will not repeal the laws no matter what judges decide. In June, Hungary passed the Stop Soros legislation which threatens anyone who helps refugees who are not entitled to protection to apply for asylum or helps legal migrants gain status to stay in Hungary, jail. Viktor Orban's policy also introduced a 25% special tax on aid groups that says support migration. Mr. Soros's group, Open Society Foundations, said the Stop Soros legislation breaches the guarantees of freedom of expression and association enshrined in the European Convention of Human Rights and must be repealed. The Hungarian government has fabricated a narrative of lies to blind people to the truth that these laws were designed to intimidate independent civil society groups in another step towards silencing or dissent. OSF President Patrick Gaspard said in a statement. Well, George Soros is one to talk about breaching rights of freedom of expression because progressives and fake liberals who are, at least some of which anyway, are supporting Soros organisations, even though they may not realise he's behind it, are also calling for freedom of speech to be targeted and are among the PC brigade trying to silence people who are saying things they don't like. So George Soros is one to talk about freedom of expression being regulated against. Now talk goes on. OSF said the provisions of the legislation were so broadly written that they will have a far-reaching and chilling effect on the work of civil society far beyond the field of migration. Budapest, which has accused Mr. Soros and the liberal groups he supports of trying to destroy Europe's Christian culture by promoting mass migration, responded with defiance. The government stands by the Stop Soros package of laws as the legislation serves the will of the Hungarian people and the security of Hungary and Europe, a government spokesman said. The Soros organization attacks the Stop Soros package with all possible means as the legislation stands in the way of legal immigration. The aim of George Soros and organizations supported by him is to flood Europe with migrants. Your article goes on. Mr. Soros, who was born in Hungary, denies trying to promote mass migration into Europe from the Middle East and elsewhere. Well, he is. In May, OSF announced it would close its office in Budapest after more than 30 years and move to Berlin. Move to Berlin in Germany, where Merkel is letting endless numbers of migrants in. It's no wonder they would want to move from Hungary, where people are aware of Soros and who he is and that he's behind migration and where his policies are facing resistance to Germany. It's no wonder they won't move there. Mr. Orban, who has been in power since 2010 and won a third consecutive term in April with a large majority, has increased his control over Hungary's media and courts and put allies in control of once independent institutions. The legislation on asylum seekers has drawn condemnation from the UN Refugee Agency and the European Union. It comes as Conservative MEPs received a letter of gratitude for their decision to oppose a vote in the European Parliament against Mr. Orban's government. Mr. Orban lost the vote and the Council triggered its process to sanction Hungary for flouting EU rules on democracy democracy and civil rights. Well, of course he lost the vote. It was never going to go any other way. This is the migration situation made simple. The West, Britain, America and others engage in a pre-planned, long-planned sequence of wars, invasions in truth, 
and West created proxy army civil wars with civil with civil in inverted commas because they're not really civil wars it's the proxy army of the West against the regime and when the proxy army of the West starts shooting at the regime the West wants to target and change there's no media there's no coordination with politicians there's no coverage when the regime starts shooting back at being shot at then the full glare of the media then the condemnation from the West he's killing his own people we've got to go in and save the people from a tyrant and they go in and it's another country ticked off on the list for Britain and America but there's this sequence of invasions and civil wars so-called in the Middle East, North East and North Africa this creates as a planned consequence the migration crisis into Europe which dilutes a sense of nationality and nationhood for the native population which is necessary to dilute resistance to a foreign body which is designed to be a world government unelected bureaucratic body the structure of the European Union but globally with unions for each continent because if you want to introduce that you have to break down resistance to that and one of the ways you do that is diluting a sense of nationality and nationhood for the native population who will say no we're all British together or we're all German together or we're all Swedish together we don't want anyone else but ourselves our country making our own decisions so what you do is you infuse the native population with people from different cultures and countries to create this melting pot so it gets to the point where there is no collective sense of nationhood anymore and thus you've broken down that sense of nationhood and thus you're more likely to be able to introduce this foreign governing body migration also creates a lack of opportunity for the natives in favour of the migrants which fosters resentment and creates divide and rule and race war and at its most extreme it ends with violence and then the authorities can come in and say right because of this violence then we need to have more security more law enforcement on the streets more surveillance to deal with the problem and you've then got on top of those who are fleeing countries destroyed by the West you've also got opportunists like single men in many cases who are not fleeing war-torn countries or invasion-torn countries to be more accurate so much as jumping on the bandwagon to exploit the benefits that's the migration situation summed up the reason people like Orban want to introduce policies like Stop Soros is because Soros is about flooding Europe with migrants, as this government spokesman quoted in this article says quite correctly. Because Soros is an asset of the hidden hand elite who want to flood Europe with migrants to achieve this very agenda I've just described. I've also talked about migration in episode 21. I've talked about George Soros before in episode 3. George Soros is involved with... NGOs, non-governmental organisations and NGOs, not to say necessarily that Cyrus is involved with all of them or even most of them, but NGOs, as I described in episode 12, are fueling migration on one level while presenting themselves as charities. The Stop Cyrus policy will I'm sure be very much welcomed by the people of Hungary. It would definitely be welcomed by the people of Sweden, 
because of the effect migration has on countries and life for the native population. But that doesn't matter to people like Soros and those in government in Sweden, Britain, America, Germany and other places who are responsible for migration into Europe and migration into other places because society is agenda driven, not people driven. The agenda is hundreds of thousands of migrants pour into Europe. So therefore, hundreds of thousands of migrants pour into Europe. Simple as that. There's a point made here about Soros supporting so-called liberal groups. But as I talk about in episode 34, the new breed of liberal is actually anything but liberal. And I explain why the new liberal is calling for various pillars of the elite's agenda. One of which is migration and supporting migrants and helping migrants. Well, that's all well and good. But first of all, you can't pour water into a glass forever and expect it not to overflow eventually. And some of these migrants, as I said, are not fleeing countries destroyed by the West as much as they're opportunists exploiting the benefits. So you can't just let every migrant in and help every migrant because they don't all deserve it. But some of them do. And that's the grey area reality that the everything black and white fake liberals and progressives can or don't want to see. And then they complain about animosity towards migrants when they are creating that animosity, especially in places like Sweden, where you've got absolute chaos because of the authorities' lack of response to the migrants in Sweden and thus animosity and resentment and friction and division between the native population and the migrants, which these fake liberals, these progressives then complain about, but they don't realise they've caused it in the first place. The next subject this week is nuclear power. This is in The Guardian. Abandoning nuclear power plans would push up carbon emissions. Abandoning the UK's ambitions for a number of new nuclear power stations would cause carbon emissions to spike and push up energy costs, according to lobbyists led by a former Conservative MP. The new Nuclear Watch Institute warned against what it called the folly of technological tribalism of pursuing a future powered by renewables and gas-fired power stations rather than any new nuclear plants. Excluding nuclear would cause the UK to emit millions of extra tonnes of carbon dioxide and put the country's carbon targets out of reach, the group concluded in a report due to be published on Thursday. This article was published on Wednesday the 26th. Tim Yeo, the Institute's chairman, said abandoning nuclear power leads unavoidably to a very big increase in carbon emissions, which will prevent Britain from meeting its legally binding climate change commitments. It also raises the cost of electricity. The article goes on. The claims will be seen as a direct riposte to recent suggestions from the government's infrastructure advisers who urged ministers to call their ambitions for as many as six new nuclear projects and prioritise renewables instead. The National Infrastructure Commission suggested the UK back only one more nuclear plant after the two reactors being built at Hinkley Point in Somerset. However, the new Nuclear Watch Institute, which is supported by nuclear industry firms including the South Korean company eyeing a nuclear project in Cumbria, said technological zealots were trying to restrict the range of options for cleaning up electricity generation. The group compared a worst case scenario where old nuclear plants are rapidly phased out, Hinkley Point C is cancelled, 
No nuclear plants are built and offshore wind farms and gas plants fill the gap with one where nuclear plants account for nearly half of electricity generation by 2030. 2030 that year again it keeps cropping up all over the place. The no nuclear world would lead to the cost of managing the UK's energy system being 15% higher and result in an extra 35 million tonnes of CO2, around a tenth of today's annual emissions. However, the comparison is based on an extreme scenario. Few expect Hinkley Point C will be axed given the billions EDF energy has already poured into it. The government has repeatedly made clear it is committed to new nuclear plants, but it's been grappling with how to help the financing of their huge upfront costs. Well, I talk about climate change in episodes 18 and 29 and talk about why it's a massive scam to justify an enormous transformation of human society in the image of the elite's agenda. So abandoning nuclear power plants leading to carbon emissions rising, at least according to this report, that's what would happen, would not change the climate because climate change is not affected by carbon emissions, it's affected by the sun. As far as nuclear power, people like Nikola Tesla were proving in the early 20th century that alternative and renewable forms of power were possible. And if he was proving it then, what are the possibilities now? Alternative renewable forms of energy technology are being suppressed while at the same time we're told that we need to transform society because of climate change caused by carbon emissions and fossil fuels. If the goal really was to save the planet, then this technology would have been made available a long time ago. But it's about using the lie of human-caused climate change as an excuse to transform global society into one of total control and totalitarianism. Nuclear power stations and radiation in general are very important to the elite's agenda because, as I've said before, the goal is to change the atmosphere of our planet. This is being achieved not least by wireless technological radiation from smart and other technology. There's more than one reason why there is a radiation agenda, but two of them are the agenda to breed a new human. A human with a new genetic form, and this is where the synthetic human agenda comes in, as I've talked about before, and this is where the transgender, gender fluid, and in truth, in the end, no gender agenda comes in. Because the idea is to create a synthetic, non-procreating race. They're even developing synthetic DNA. They call it GNA or PNA. And the other reason for the radiation agenda is wireless communication within the ELF or EMF, extremely low frequency and electromagnetic frequency, radiation spectrum, which is this wireless radiation I'm talking about, is essential to the smart cities agenda and the transhuman agenda. The idea is the new human will be living in the smart cities and will be capable, because of this genetic change, to survive within this massively irradiated atmosphere and live in it. Subsequent generations will be created in laboratories as humans won't be born anymore because there won't be any genders that procreate anymore. So they'll be created in laboratories and they'll be connected to the cloud from the point of completion of creation as part of the transhuman agenda, which I talk about considerably in episode 11. And I talk about what the cloud is in episode 11. When you look at the evidence disproving the climate change caused by humans hoax and the way its effect is massively exaggerated, and you look at the radiation agenda, which I've just described, then you can see this call to keep nuclear power plants to stop carbon emissions rising from a very different perspective, but only when you know the agenda, and that's why I do pay-per-view. The next subject this week is United Nations. 
in relation to women. This is in the Daily Mail. Royals and celebrities put spotlight on global efforts to boost women. From real life princesses to Hollywood royalty, women took the spotlight like never before this week at the United Nations, where world leaders met to measure progress on global goals to end poverty and inequality. The meeting of global movers and shakers topped off a recent surge of attention on gender, sexual violence and equal rights, raising the profile of efforts to boost female participation around the world, observers said. Crown Princess Mary of Denmark took to a UN podium to talk about the rights of refugee migrant women and girls, while Princess Mabel von Orange of the Netherlands was promoting an end to child marriage. Protection of migrants and eradication of child marriage are among the global goals adopted unanimously by UN member nations three years ago. The set of 17 goals aims to end such woes as poverty, conflict and inequality by, drumroll please, 2030. I'll come to these goals in a minute. I do think gender equality is a rising force, said Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister of Australia, who now heads the Global Partnership for Education to promote schooling for girls. Evidence is now very clearly showing us that educating girls and empowering women is pivotal to achieving so many of the global goals, she told the Thompson Reuters Foundation. Queen Rania of Jordan made a public plea for Arab women, who she said were struggling amid civil war and violence, and underlined the role women play stemming conflict and violence. Well, they're also struggling with the way that women are treated in places like Saudi Arabia and other places. Arab women are digging deep to hold their families together in the most testing conditions, she told a he for she summit in a packed New York City venue. But in this instability, we have seen strides in health and education. And she told the crowd, empowerment is contagious. Queen Maxima of the Netherlands advocated for inclusive finance for development, as did Ivanka Trump, daughter of an advisor to US President Donald Trump. We know that investing in women is a priority in terms of our global security, global prosperity and peace. The President's daughter told a meeting of the Women Entrepreneurs Finance Initiative, women are one of the greatest untapped resources. The question might be asked, why are so many of these people in authority and representing the elite coming out in support of women? Why would they be? The article goes on. The heightened role for women comes after millions have marched in the streets around the world and the birth of such widespread movements as Me Too, come to them in a minute, and Time's Up, which tackles sexual violence and She Decides, which supports reproductive rights. In the United States, record numbers of women are running for political office and accusations by women of sexual misconduct threaten lawmakers' approval of Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. There's a story there in itself. The issues are more on the agenda. Katya Iverson, head of Women Deliver a Gender Equality Advocacy Group, told the Thompson Reuters Foundation. It's becoming an imperative for companies and for governments because of the Me Too movement and Time's Up and She Decides, but also because of the evidence that shows both societies and economies fare so much better if there are more women involved, Iverson said. She cited a report showing the full equality of women and men in labour markets could add as much as $28 trillion, 26%, to global gross domestic product by 2025. Who would throw away double-digit growth numbers that could come with more gender-equal workplaces, Iverson said. Among those promoting gender equality amid the world leaders' meeting was Hollywood actress Anne Hathaway, while actress Kristen Bell played a role as a humanitarian advocate. Mexican actress Cecilia Suarez was set to join the European Union and the UN's announcement of a 50 million euro, 59 million dollar investment to end femicide in Latin America. YouTube celebrity Lily Singh put her star power to work to promote a UN children's agency UNICEF event while models Chilean Mercado and Mary Malek and Venezuelan actress Eglantini Zing were slated to pitch in for an array of social causes. See, isn't it interesting how 
so many celebrities will come out in support of that which supports the elite's agenda and that which the elite want. How many celebrities do you see doing the opposite? How many Hollywood actresses and actors do you see doing the opposite? What you're hearing now is the answer. The article goes on. Meanwhile, the British government and information and technology company Bloomberg LP announced a partnership to improve reporting on gender equality in the workplace. Gender equality is not just a moral imperative, it's good business, said Britain's Minister for Women and Equalities, Penny Mordaunt. Well, I have to say, what we're seeing now is a move from equality for women and confronting sexism, fair enough, totally valid, to with the rise of feminism. Not necessarily in the past, but certainly now, I'm seeing more and more. We're seeing a situation where women are starting to take advantage of the drive for equality for women and starting to take over instead. So what you've done is you've moved from a patriarchy, as feminists keep talking about, to a matriarchy. But there's still a form of hierarchy. Why is it that so many women who celebrate women, nothing wrong with that, fair enough, but why is it that so many who do seem to do it with an air of women being dominant and or being better than men, rather than both being equal? Because that's how it seems to me in some cases. You look at people like Beyonce and people would say, oh, she's talking about women and she's a great icon for women. I have to say, when I look at Beyonce, I see it as being women taken over. One of her songs is called Girls Rule the World. I mean, she couldn't have made it any plainer. It's a move from a genuine drive for equality, which is how it started, to over a period of time, especially to now, where we're seeing women starting to take advantage of that and starting to try to take over, instead of both being equal. I've talked before about the hashtag Me Too movement. Me Too and their ilk are quite happy to talk about perceived sexual harassment and genuine sexual harassment even as well with people like Harvey Weinstein which is when this whole Me Too movement started when the news about that started to come out but where are they about the abuse of women in Saudi Arabia? Where are they about the abuse of women at the hands of other ethnic groups other than white people? Where are they then? Nowhere. Because if they were genuine they'd be calling out this abuse of women by other ethnic groups instead of just being virtue-signalling, headline-grabbing, camera-seeking frauds, which is what they seem to be, to me, the more I look at it. They're quite happy to put their black dresses on and go to an award show. Oh, I'm wearing a black dress, therefore I stand against sexual harassment and sexual abuse. Yeah, but where are you about abuse of women by men of other ethnic groups? Nowhere. And... I said I'd come back to the set of 17 goals which are, we're told, aimed to be tackled by 2030. And one of them, as it says at the top of this article, poverty and inequality. The United Nations don't want to end poverty and inequality. It's the United Nations that are behind Agenda 21, which fundamentally plays into the Hunger Games Society agenda, which is based on a tiny few elite living in mega, mega luxury, even more than they do now, and unelected bureaucrats running basically a world government with unions in every country. 
like the European Union, dictating to regions, which we now call countries, but there'll be regions in the plan. And this is the Hunger Games sector cities, the smart cities in our world, and everyone else in mega, mega poverty. And when I say everyone else, I mean everyone else. If you're not part of this elite, they want your money as well. It's not just the people who don't have money now or don't have much money now. They want everyone's money. And I talk about the Hunger Games Society more in episode four. So the idea that the United Nations wants to tackle poverty and inequality is a joke. And there's an offshoot of Agenda 21 or an expansion of it called Agenda 2030. And it lists these global goals, but in truth, they're goals of the elite's global agenda. I'll explain each goal and I'll say what each one really means. Number one, end poverty in all its forms everywhere. Restructuring global finance with a new structure, a world bank dictating all global finance from a central point. I know we have a world bank now, but a one world central bank dictating all global finance with an electronic currency, which I've talked about before. And the entire money supply centrally controlled and dictated, meaning only those who follow authorities' orders are allowed access to money. Number two, end hunger, achieve food security and achieve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. The entire food production globally handed to corporations, because as I've said before, there's only designed to be corporations in the world of the elite's agenda. The entire global food supply genetically modified and the entire food supply centrally controlled and dictated, meaning only those who follow authorities' orders are allowed access to food. Number three, ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for all at all ages. The entire medical medicinal system globally handed to corporations, the entire global medicine supply centrally controlled and dictated and alternatives banned. Number four, Ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for all. Equal indoctrination, because as I've said before in episodes 21, because as I've said before in episodes 21 and 15, the education system is about indoctrination more than it is about education. Equal indoctrination and endless opportunities throughout life for further indoctrination after leaving school. This is what they call higher education or further education, further indoctrination, higher indoctrination. Number five, achieve gender equality in a power of women and girls. The fluid gender agenda I've talked about already today and I've talked about many times before and I've talked about empowering a women and girls already with this story. Number six, ensure available and sustainable management of water and sanitation for all. Control of all water from a central point in the hands of the few. Only those who follow authorities' orders are allowed access to water. And the entire global water supply will be filled with pharmaceutical drugs, chemicals and toxins. It already is in some places. And fluoride as well, in some places, which is a toxin. Number seven, ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable and modern energy for all. Control of all energy sources from a central point in the hands of the corporations representing the elite and only those who follow authorities' orders are allowed access to energy. Number eight, promote sustained, inclusive and sustainable economic growth, full and productive employment and decent work for all. Control of the economic activity through global government and trade zones, deindustrialization, reduced industrial activity and where you work and the conditions of work will be dictated by whatever corporation you work for.
Number nine, build resilient infrastructure, promote inclusive and sustainable industrialization and foster innovation. You see, one of the things they do is they use words and phrase sentences and statements in, in a way that they know people are A, not going to understand what they mean, and B, be bored and not interested in what they mean because of the way they're worded. They can't just come out and say the agenda, although sometimes they do when it comes to things like transhumanism because they're trying to sell it to us, but most of the time they don't. So they have to word the statements and phrase them in a way where they seem innocuous or it's too difficult to understand them, so I just won't bother. This happens in politics all the time. And it's done for a reason. You see, the other thing it does as well is it gives people the impression that because the politicians or the political leaders like Theresa May or whoever are using language and statements with wording like build resilient infrastructure, promote inclusive and sustainable industrialization and foster innovation, people think that means they're clever. It doesn't. A, it's often their statements are written by other people, not in every case, but also it's worded that way for a reason. It's worded that way because they know what people's reaction to that are going to be, or at least in most cases anyway. So what this one means is build human settlement zones. I'll talk about that in episode four and deindustrialization. The human settlement zones are the very narrow living space and high rise blocks of flats within the smart cities in the regions, in the sectors of the Hunger Games Society. Number 10, reduce inequality within and among countries. Everyone poor equally, as I've just said. Number 11, make cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient and sustainable. They like the word resilient, don't they? And sustainable, that's a big buzzword for them. Although it doesn't mean what they know people will think it means. Sustainable doesn't mean what sustainable means, it means sustainable control, sustainable agenda. Make citizen human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient and sustainable. Remove people from vast tracts of land and cram them into highly populated human settlement zones. Again, that's what this means. It's basically prison camps made safe by 24-7 surveillance. These apartments, very narrow living space in high-rise blocks of flats in the smart cities. Number 12, ensure sustainable consumption and production patterns. Control of all production and distribution from a central point in the hands of the few. In other words, the corporations will produce everything. They'll distribute everything. So commerce effectively is run by the corporations. And that includes food, by the way. Number 13, take urgent action to combat human-caused climate change and its impacts. Well, don't get me started on that one. I talked about that earlier. As I say, I've talked about climate change in episode 29 and episode 18. What climate change is about is so much of the elite's agenda is justified by climate change. And it's just an excuse to change society in the image of the elite's agenda and this agenda which is basically the same thing anyway, in terms of what it wants and what the elite want. 
Number 14. Conserve and sustainably use the ocean, seas and marine resources for sustainable development. Control of all ocean, seas and marine resources and everything within them from a central point. Number 15. Protect, restore and promote sustainable use of terrestrial ecosystems, sustainably managed forests, combat desertification and halt and reverse land degradation, halt biodiversity loss. Nice and simple, isn't it? Remove people from vast tracts of land and cram them into highly populated human settlement zones and ban people from most of the world. Number 16. Promote peaceful and inclusive societies for sustainable development, provide access to justice for all and build effective, accountable and inclusive institutions at all levels. Peace, in inverted commas, is maintained through a vicious, tyrannical police state and constant 24-7 surveillance and people will be subjected to the system's version of justice, in other words, whatever suits the system, whatever suits authority is what will be decided is justice, and the will of unelected leaders of the world government, and the unions in each part of the world, controlling the regions, the sectors and the Hunger Games smart cities. And finally, number 17, strengthen the means of implementation and revitalise the global partnership for sustainable development. The end of national sovereignty with all power and decision-making in the centre in the hands of the elite. Basically, the structure of the European Union, but on a global level. So, that's where we're going, and that's only part of it. Anyone think that's worth doing anything about? I think so. Final subject this week is... Swedish election. This is in The Independent. Swedish Prime Minister Stefan Löfven ousted after losing no confidence vote. Sweden's Prime Minister Stefan Löfven has lost a no confidence vote in Parliament, meaning he will have to step down from his post. The leader of the Swedish Social Democrats will stay as a caretaker of Prime Minister during coalition talks to decide the country's next government following close elections earlier this month. MPs in the Riksdag, the Swedish unicameral parliament, voted 204 to 142 against Mr Lofton, with three abstentions. He has been Prime Minister since 2014. The centre-left bloc in the parliament has 144 seats and the centre-right bloc has 143, while the far-right Sweden Democrats has 62. Neither of the main blocs has a majority and neither are expected to do a deal with the Sweden Democrats, meaning forming a majority could prove difficult. The Social Democrats fared better than expected and won 28.3% of the vote, while the centre-right moderate party received 19.8% and the Sweden Democrats 17.5%. Under the Swedish system, both of the main parties are joined by smaller parties from their respective end of the political spectrum into wider blocs which are made clear ahead of the election. The left bloc consists of the Social Democrats, the Greens and the left party, while the centre-right bloc is the moderates, the centre party, the Christian Democrats and the Liberals. Coalition talks will now begin in earnest with Andreas Norland, the newly elected moderate Riksdag speaker, charged with trying to find someone who can command a majority. Mr Lofton said he was available for talks to form a new coalition, but stopped short of saying who he might go into government with. He added, it is my wish to continue serving our country as Prime Minister. I want to lead a government that enjoys broad support in Sweden's parliament so that we can leave bloc politics behind and take the country forward. Well, he might start by actually serving the country rather than allowing the country to become the chaos that it is. The article goes on. Moderates leader Ulf Christensen said to the Alliance, it is obvious that Sweden needs a new government. The negotiations are expected to be complicated. The Liberals and Centre Party have said they will quit the centre-right bloc if the moderates do any deal with the far-right in exchange for support. The centre-right bloc and the centre-left bloc could potentially reach some kind of deal to give each other support on issues where there is a consensus. 
However, there are fears that anything seen as a stitch-up by the main parties could fuel support for the right-wing populists in future elections. Mr Lofven, a former trade union official, worked as a welder before entering politics. He also served in the Swedish Air Force. Well, Lofven could have no complaints about this no-confidence vote because his inaction has led to chaos reigning in Sweden. And people have had enough. They want a leader and a party who will represent the interests of the native population, not the migrants. This is the effect of the hijacking of the traditional left, which I talk about in episode 34, and the transition into the fake liberal left, new tyranny. The chaos in Sweden is a consequence of the political correctness obsessed fake liberal left being allowed to run the country through a political leader and party, in this case Lofven in Sweden. The lack of response to gang rape and arson perpetrated by migrants has been caused by the fake liberal left who are so quick to jump on any perceived racism as opposed to genuine racism and brand people racist and xenophobic when in truth they are merely stating facts such as simple mathematical facts in relation to migration as I said with the previous story. There comes a point when the glass overflows. That's not racism, that's just simple mathematics. The fear of being branded racist has caused authorities not to respond, but there's a simple fact that you don't end racism by doing it in reverse. We see this all the time where black people or people from other ethnic minorities are allowed to get away with things that white people never could, including racism. If a black person wanted to hold a blacks-only event with no white people allowed, then often there's very little or no fuss about that, but if it was the other way around, then there's a massive fury. This is the PC pyramid I talk about in episodes 13 and 15. The fake liberal left because of their power through law enforcement and politics, not just in causing inaction but in prompting into action the authorities to act against what they complain about and perceive and claim as racism or hate crime or whatever other PC indiscretion they feel the authorities should be involved in dealing with when actually it's legitimate comment or questioning. Because of this power, the fake liberal left are the new tyranny. They think they're fighting for freedom, not that you can, and neither should we. It's a contradiction in terms. But they think they're fighting for freedom and equality, ironically, when they're destroying both. Populism, the rise of the right, as the fake liberal left would say, is a reaction to this very situation and the silencing of people perceived to be of the right over decades. People pointing out facts and asking legitimate questions and making very salient points, not least on migration. Also, another aspect of this, you can see this in Britain, young people are claimed to be represented by progressive parties when actually they're being exploited. You've got young people totally clueless about the world, world events, politics, etc., voting for Jeremy Corbyn, this spineless leader of the opposition Labour Party in Britain who promises free this and that. And of course, many young people buy into that because how could there be anything wrong with that? What they don't realise is that nothing's free. What Corbyn will have to do is borrow from the banks. And that debt then, because it always does, inevitably gets passed on to the people, and more specifically working class people. Small business will be hit by this policy as well. And of course that plays into the agenda. Not saying Corbyn knows that, but plays into the agenda to get rid of small business. So these young people are actually calling for their own exploitation without realising it. I don't buy into the spectrum from left to right at all. It's all part of the same system. But it's important to highlight the hijacking of the traditional left and its transition, or that part of the traditional left that's now the fake liberal left, because it's become the new tyranny and it will remain the new tyranny until it's addressed. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contest in connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.